I have a star tracker app on my phone. And uh, it's kind of cool. You can point up and it gives the names of the stars. And then it connects the stars to the other stars in constellation. There's Venus and Jupiter right over here. Do you, do you know that stars really don't come out at night? They're out all the time. We just can't see it because our star is a little brighter than the other stars during the day. Um, I did a little research thinking about my uh, Star Tracker app. Our galaxy has over 300 billion stars. And estimates are there are more than 2 trillion galaxies. Now, as I look through my Star Tracker app and I hear numbers like that, I feel pretty small, infinitesimal. Now, if you were to multiply that by like infinity, you would have a feeling like three disciples must have felt like one day when they walked up a mountain with Jesus and they saw Jesus transfigured before them. That's the passage we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. And while you're turning there, let me tell you, we're going to look at the heart of discipleship today. And here's why I'm calling it heart of disciple. We, in English, we often think of heart as the seat of emotion. I love you with all my heart. But when you read heart in the Bible, heart does not mean emotion. Heart means control center. Heart means where decisions are made. Heart means where your allegiances are, your priorities. And what we need to remember is that the heart of discipleship is not technique. The heart of discipleship is not rules. It's not regulations. It's not following a pattern. It's not reading a book. The heart of discipleship is catching a glimpse of who Jesus is and then responding appropriately to who he is. Now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read out the passage beginning earlier than that in chapter 8, and we're going to read through that. And as I'm reading through, I want you to think, what are you learning about Jesus? What does it have to say about Jesus here that should capture our attention and cause us to follow more closely? I'm going to begin reading in verse 27 of chapter 8, which kind of is the prelude to the Mount of Transfiguration, and I'll read through the beginning section of chapter 9. So here we go. Mark 8, 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death until they see the, the kingdom of God has come with power. Now here's the mountain. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anything in the anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with, with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, no one was, no one, no, they, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Now, we've been looking at Mark's gospel for a number of weeks, and I've said to you right at the beginning, and hopefully you're seeing it traced through, Mark shows his hand early. He lets us know where he's going early. The first verse in Mark's gospel says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then what does Mark do in all the chapters that follow? He's just unpacking what it means that Jesus is the Messiah and unpacking what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, how does that work then? Well, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Messiah doesn't mean Savior, right? Messiah just means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, it came to be almost synonymous with king. Jesus is the conquering king. And if you put together all those Old Testament passages that are about the Messiah, and you leave out all the negative ones, you wind up with the Messiah almost being a superhero. You know, if we were to take a poll today, uh, my guess is each of you has a favorite superhero, right? Uh, is it Superman, Batman? Is it Black Panther, Wonder Woman? Iron Man's kind of up there for me, right? Well, you're, everybody wants a superhero, and here's the point. When you read the Old Testament, you can look at some of the passages and expect that the Messiah is going to kind of be like a superhero. And he's going to come, defeat the enemy, win the day. What do superheroes do? They lift up justice for all of the people that can't do it for themselves. That's what all those superheroes do, right? They kind of win the day, and they win the day for righteousness and justice. And when you read the Old Testament, that kind of seems like what the Messiah is going to come and do. And here's the amazing thing. When you read Mark's gospel, the first seven chapters, that's what Jesus does. You read through the chapters. So Mark says, here's the Messiah. What does Jesus do in Mark chapters 1 through 7? He heals people that are blind and they can see again. He takes a paralytic that's never walked, raises him, and he carries his own mat back home. 
He raises a dead girl back to life. He calms a raging sea and stops the wind from blowing. He casts out demons from people that are being demonized. Jesus is this conquering superhero. In fact, the first half of Mark's gospel is almost like climbing this mountain of popularity. Jesus is the superhero. He's coming to win the day. And that fit most of the expectations of Jesus' day. That's why I wanted to read the passage at the end of Mark 8. Because what Peter says is what you and I would have said. Jesus gets him alone, his disciples, and he says, so uh, who do people say I am? Now, think of all that he's been feeding, 5,000 people, 4,000 people with just crumbs. And Jesus is doing all these wonderful things. What does Peter say? You're the Messiah. You're that superhero from the Old Testament. It's happening. And then immediately, Jesus begins to turn. And you see, Mark is, the book, the Gospel of Mark is kind of like a mountain. The first eight chapters you're climbing, and at the top, you get Jesus, the Messiah, the conquering hero, the superhero. And then Jesus kind of levels it out and he begins to say, yeah, but it's not quite what you think. He says, right after Peter confesses, he's the Messiah, he's the superhero. Jesus said, yeah, but let me tell you the rest of the story. The rest of the story is, I'm going to suffer. They're going to kill me. Peter then takes Jesus aside and says, Jesus, let me, let me show you how to read the Old Testament because you obviously don't have this down yet. Jesus, the Messiah is a superhero. The Messiah comes to win the day. Messiahs don't suffer. Conquering kings don't come and die. Jesus, you need to revisit the Old Testament. Do your homework, pal. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Now, that doesn't mean like Peter's the devil. What it means is Peter, by only latching on to half of what Jesus has been saying and who Jesus is and missing the other half, he has complete misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. In fact, the first half of Mark is climbing the mountain of popularity, victory, Jesus calming seas, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, healing people from all these diseases. What's the second half of Mark about? Yeah, beginning in chapter 11, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem and he's arrested and he's convicted and he's tortured and he's executed. See, the second half of Mark is the downward side of the mountain. They're at the top now, but Jesus shows them, not just says to Peter, yeah, you're right, I'm the Messiah, but there's more to the story. He then lets them catch a glimpse of his glory on the mountain. You see, there's a paradox in that. The paradox is Jesus is the Messiah. He is the conquering hero. He's the one that's coming, to, and he came to make all things right. But he's also the suffering servant. He's the savior that comes to pay for the debt that others have earned. Jesus is both of those things. And if you don't get both sides of the paradox, you kind of miss the point. Now, why is the second part of the paradox necessary? We understand the first part. Superhero, Messiah, King, Conqueror, right? Because, you know, Israel's kind of under the thumb of Rome at this point. But why is the second part necessary? Why is it necessary? Uh, it even says, the Son of Man must suffer. Why is it necessary? 
You ever notice that some things don't go together? Right? Some, like, for example, donuts and gyms don't go together, right? Um, coffee and sugar shouldn't go together, right? Um, there are lots of things that don't go. Well, it doesn't seem to go together that conquering king and suffering savior, but why is it necessary? Let, let, let me just give you a couple of reasons. Here's one reason. In order to bring forgiveness. You see, Jesus, if he would have come as the conquering hero only without the suffering Savior part, he would have stood victorious. He would have won the day and he would have stood alone because there's nobody righteous enough to stand with him. But the second part of the story makes it possible for you and for me and people like us to kind of stand with him because there's forgiveness that has to be purchased. So yesterday afternoon, Kim and I were watching the Phillies. How do you like the new rules, by the way, right? Giant bases. Uh, pitch, I like the pitch clock, by the way. Games are nice and short. I'm not sure I like the not being able to shift move and all that. We got new. So Kim and I are watching the game. And I was thinking, um, suppose you came over. This is not an invitation, by the way. But suppose you come over and you're watching the Phillies games with, games with. And even though it's pre even though it's spring training and the games don't really count, suppose the Phillies make a bonehead move. The pitcher throws up, you know, this cupcake guy. It's a home run. Now they're losing. And you are so ticked off, even though it's a spring training game, you jump up, grab the lamp on our table and smash it to the floor. Well, Kim would immediately jump up and think about dropping you on the floor. But, but now, what's going to happen with the lamp? Well, suppose I say, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll clean up the mess. Okay, now, here's what's going to happen. Either you're going to pay to buy a new lamp, or I'm going to forgive you, and we're either going to live without light, or I'm going to go buy a new lamp. Somebody's paying for the lamp. That's how forgiveness works, right? When you and I sin, something gets broken. Maybe it's not a physical object like a lamp. Maybe it's somebody's heart. Maybe you've slandered somebody's reputation. Maybe you've done something to hurt someone. Maybe it's not tangible, but something. And here's the point. When you and I sin, somebody's going to pay. That doesn't just evaporate. Either we're going to demand that the other person pay and buy a lamp, or we're going to go out and buy another lamp. But make no mistake, somebody's paying for a lamp. Well, that's what sin's about. We've sinned against God, and the point is, somebody's going to pay. Either you're going to pay, or... Jesus is going to come not just as conquering Messiah, he's going to come as suffering Savior to pay for that debt. Once there's sin, in order for forgiveness, somebody's got to pay. Here's another one. Jesus comes to love. You know, if Jesus didn't come, we really wouldn't understand love. Here, here's what love is for most of us. Uh, if, if, if we kind of do it naturally, right? Maybe, maybe the gospel's kind of softening your heart a little, but here's my guess. Underneath your, your attitudes of love, underneath your actions of love, there really is, but what am I getting out of it? Isn't that right? Now, you, you don't have to laugh at that. I know it's true. <laughs> underneath all of your gracious acts, underneath all of your sacrificial behavior, underneath sacrificing your time and energy for, underneath, what am I going to get out of this? We often look at other people and we do things thinking we're going to get something out of it. Okay, now here's the question. 
What happens if you do that with little kids? You ever notice your kids, my kids, grandkids, they're more consumers than producers. You ever notice that? What do they actually contribute to the family? They don't even contribute attitudinally to the family, right? I mean, does your little um, seven-year-old ever say, oh, mom, thank you so much for picking me up at school. Daddy, thanks so much for, you know, not going golfing on Saturday, for taking me out. Thank you so much for sacrificing to send me to basketball camp. Thank you. You've sacrificed so I can get braces and have straight teeth. Thank you. Your kids ever say that to you? They're little demanding suckers, aren't they? And they fully expect you to just give them everything. And there's never a word of thanks. There's never any human. There's never like, I'll pay you back. Like your little kid doesn't say, hey, dad, I've got a friend at school and his dad hires for Merck. Would you like a new job? Your kids never do that for you, do they? They're more consumers than producers. How did Jesus teach us to love? Jesus comes and gives what realistically can we give to Jesus? He, he's God. He stepped off the throne of the universe. You and I can't give him anything. And yet he comes and gives to us. He teaches us that love is giving without the expectation of return. Love is not saying, well, what am I going to get out of this? Love is giving your time, your energy, shuffling your priorities and agenda for the benefit of others rather than yourself without a hook in it, somehow thinking you're going to get something back. Why is it necessary that Jesus has to be suffering Savior beside conquering King? For forgiveness, for love, and for life. All the way back in the beginning of the book, God says, when you sin and rebel against me, death is the result. Now, you may not like that plan. That's okay. This is God's universe. That's his plan. When you rebel against him, you forfeit the life that he had for you. And we've, you know, sometimes we kind of look down our noses at Adam and Eve. You know, we would have done the same thing. We do the same thing every day. We know what God wants us to do, and we do the opposite all the time. So we're just like that. We are their children and grandchildren, great-grands, right? We follow their example every day. Death is the result. Jesus comes and takes that death so we can have life in return. So why is it necessary that the Messiah, the superhero, is also the suffering Savior for forgiveness to be purchased, for love not just to be demonstrated, but for love to be experienced and then to be extended by us, and for life to be granted, and by faith for that life to be received. It's necessary. So Jesus is Messiah. That's a paradox. He is the superhero, king of kings, and he's the suffering savior. He's both. Peter was beginning to get the one side of it. But as soon as the suffering side was mentioned, as soon as the downward side of the mountain was mentioned, Peter was ready to bail. And as long as we're talking about Peter, most of you know the story that Peter eventually says, Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. I'll fight to the death. And you want to know something? I believe if it was a physical fight to the death, 
Peter, Peter would have grabbed a sword and fought for the death. He would have fought to death. After all, in the garden, is that what he did? He takes out a sword. The servant begins to come toward him. What does he do? He swings at the guy. He's not very good aim. He aims for his neck. He hits his ear, right? Ear pops off. Then Jesus says, Peter, put the sword away. Well, we're not. Peter can't understand it, right? He understands fighting. He understands the conquering king part. He still isn't getting the suffering savior part. Jesus puts the ear back on and Peter, and then eventually Peter wanders away. Can't figure this out and denies that he even knows him. Kind of sound like us, doesn't it? Jesus the Messiah, it's a paradox, but it's necessary. Both halves are necessary. Not just that, that passage about the Mount of Transfiguration is all about worship, all about worship. Now, here's how we define worship. You can define it however you want. This is how we define it. Worship is seeing God accurately and responding appropriately. So we emphasize worship is really not technique. Worship isn't about, now on the third stanza, raise your hands. On this, raise it, sit down. Oh, it's not technique. It's not following the rules. It's not jumping through the hoops. Worship is catching a glimpse of who God is and then responding appropriately. And now the Bible kind of tells us what that appropriate response is. So we're not left to our own devices to kind of figure it out. If you catch a glimpse of who God is, you're captivated by his glory, his wonder, and you want to respond appropriately. Just like when you gaze at the stars, you realize you're a puny little nothing here. When you catch a glimpse of God, you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe somebody like that would love me. Well, if worship is seeing God accurately and responding appropriately, the heart of discipleship is seeing Jesus accurately and following appropriately. That's all it is. I mean, it's not technique. It's not going through the book. It's not filling in the answers. You may do those things, but it's not the technique or the book or the plan. It's catching a glimpse of who Jesus is, and then you follow appropriately. We've been talking about discipleship as experiencing the gospel, right? And then extending the gospel. It's the same thing. You catch a glimpse of who Jesus is. Really, that's what's happening on the mountain. They're catching a glimpse of who he, who he really is. And they don't follow appropriately yet. They're still kind of figure that out. You ever wonder why Peter says, we're going to put up three tents. Um, here's why he said that, though. He said that because there was another mountain in the Old Testament. I think Wednesday night we'll talk about this. There was another mountain in the Old Testament. Moses climbs that mountain, catches a glimpse of God's glory. And remember, Moses come down, his, he's shiny, right? His face is shiny a little bit. He has to cover it. And what does God then say? Okay, now, I can't be with my people or you'll be consumed. So build a tent so that I will be kept from them. So Peter says, I'm getting it. This is kind of like the Moses story again. I'm going to build tents for these shiny guys to keep them away from us. God, Peter was rebuked in chapter 8 by Jesus. Now he's rebuked by God the Father. Peter, shut the heck up, right? This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Stop talking and listen to him. Now, here I think is what's going on in Peter's mind. 
I think Peter, you know, Elijah stands for like the first set of prophets, Moses for the giver of the law. And in Peter's mind, as best we can guess, in Peter's mind, he's probably saying, I see what's going on here. I think I'm getting it. Jesus is being raised up to almost the level of Moses. Jesus is being lifted up to almost the level of the prophets like Elijah. And the father says, Peter, you moron. Jesus isn't being lifted to their level. They are nothing more than signposts to who he is. He's my son. They're just servants. You listen to him. Peter's a little dense. Kind of like us, right? How often do we do the drill? Go to church, read the Bible, go to your small group, go to an ABF, talk about these things, women's Bible study, men's Bible. But the penny doesn't always drop, does it? It's just catching a glimpse of who Jesus is and following appropriately, experiencing the gospel and extending the gospel. That's all that it is. It's not about technique. It's not about rules, hoop jumping, regulation. It's about seeing Jesus. And when you see him accurately, you kind of respond appropriately. And our following isn't going to be right. It's going to be kind of meted out as we go. It'll be corrected as we go. Kind of like riding a bike, right? You're on the pavement. You got to be organized a little bit. Keep on the pavement. Well, that's what happens. As you're following, you'll kind of be corrected, corrected by other people in the community, corrected by the spirit, corrected as we're seeking to follow. It's a paradox. It's necessary. Discipleship is real close to worship. You know, worship is a, a priority word. Worship is a heart word. Worship is, what are you valuing most? And here's the point. As Jesus gets promoted to that worship place in our hearts, the things that we put there must be demoted. Because the reality is, we all have something that competes for that spot that only Jesus can fill, don't we? I don't know what yours, I have an idea what mine are. I don't know what yours are. Um, is, it, is it your marriage? That's kind of a weird thing, right? But you can put your marriage above your relationship with Jesus. How about your kids? How about money, job, reputation? I mean, we go on and on. We love to take good gifts of God and make them kind of the God thing. Well, when they become the God thing, they now become competition for Jesus. And whatever is his competition in your life, he's coming to get it. So worship, discipleship, kind of move hand in hand in this passage He's showing us that. You know, maybe the summary verse of Mark's gospel is uh, all about service. It's in chapter 10. So if you think of Mark this way, you climb the mountain the first, you know, almost eight chapters or eight chapters, not quite, you shift gears. In. Then in the middle of eight, across through 10, you're kind of at the pinnacle. You're at the summit. You're walking around. You're seeing who Jesus is. You're wrestling with Jesus as conquering king, superhero, but also suffering savior. And then beginning in chapter 11, you got the descent. In chapter 11, the triumphal entry leads to the execution. So it's kind of like a mountain, right? Right before the descent starts, we get the summary verse of Mark's gospel in 1045. You want to memorize? Here's a good verse to memorize. Jesus says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, the 
whole gospel he's been serving. He's been healing people. He's been feeding people. He's been raising dead people. He's been serving people. But his greatest service follows that verse as he moves into Jerusalem for the appointment with the cross on Friday. That's his greatest service. And so you know what that means for you and me? If we're going to see Jesus accurately, superhero and savior, we're going to respond appropriately. We're going to live that out. We're going to live with confidence, not in ourselves and our abilities, live out our confidence in him, seeking to serve others, really loving them, not in a relationship, not serving them for what we can get out of it, really serving them for their benefit, putting our stuff aside, our agenda, our priorities, so we can meet the priorities of others. I sat at my desk the other day and I was thinking, you know what? This whole discipleship deal, it's really a tale of two mountains. The mountain in chapter 9, the mountain in chapter 15. The mountain in chapter 9 is the Mount of Transfiguration. The one in 15 is Mount Calvary. They're a little different, though. Did you notice, Do you notice that when you read them? On, um, on the mount in chapter 9, we see Jesus blazing in light. On Mount Calvary, Jesus is covered in shame. On the Mount of Transfiguration, his clothes become whiter than you know, uh, any bleach can ever make them. In chapter 15, his clothes are stripped off of him and they're gambled for by the soldiers killing him. In, mount, on, the, in the mount, on the mountain in chapter 9, Jesus is between Moses and Elijah. Mount Calvary, he's between two criminals as he's being executed. Mount of Transfiguration, God booms from heaven. This is my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. What does God say on Mount Calvary? Nothing. Silence. In chapter 9, Peter says, it's wonderful that we're here. We'll build tents. Mount Calvary. Peter runs away, denying that he even knows him. Tale of two mountains. Not two different messiahs. One messiah. His identity, superhero, conquering king, promised messiah. Suffering savior. Who came to pay our debt so we can be forgiven. So we can experience love and extend love. And so we can trade our death sentence for eternal life. Just a tale of two mountains. But you know what? If we can catch just a little glimpse of that, we won't need technique. We won't need hoops and rules and regulations. We'll follow appropriately. Living in confidence and hope because of who he is following his example, sacrificially serving other people. It's not a bad story to be made part of, is it?
That's his gift to us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the big picture, the big picture that Mark tells us, the picture of Christ's identity that begins to be unfolded even at the beginning of the story in Genesis, but its climax isn't for 66 books later. Lord, we're kind of awed this morning that that's not just his story, but he makes us part of that story. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to never get over that, but to live in light of that. Help us to see that story accurately, and that'll never be perfectly, but we'll see it accurately. Help us to respond appropriately. To follow his example. Not that we can step out and bring eternal forgiveness to people, but we can extend forgiveness to others when they sin against us. We can live in hope and confidence, putting other people ahead of us, just like he taught us. We pray in his name. Amen.